Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm your host, John Moorhead. And I hope you enjoy this podcast today. Of course, uh, this is not the only subject matter we've covered. If you take a look at our growing library, you see a variety of of multi-faith and religion and pop culture topics. And if you check out our website at multifaithmatters.org, you'll find uh, a variety of other resources, not only the podcast, but videos and recommended articles and recommended books and and such things. So uh, please seek that out. Um, Today, I'm pleased on the podcast uh, to have a guest that I, we've been trying for several weeks here, and we finally pulled it together, uh, Fred Stella. I'm going to read Fred's bio here. Fred is a product of 16 years in the Catholic education system, including his time at the University of Detroit, where he obtained his degree in communications and mass media. His interest in Hinduism began at age 15 when studying comparative religions. By the time he was in his mid-30s, he formally embraced the Dharma, Over the years, Fred has spent time expanding his knowledge with study and practice in various ashrams and temples in the U.S. and India. In 2009, the West Michigan Hindu Temple ordained him as, I hope I'm pronouncing this uh, correctly, Fred, Pracharek? Pracharek. Pracharek. Ah, that was my second guess. Or Outreach Minister. Fred is often a featured speaker at international conferences and has completed extensive lecture tours in India and Guyana. One of Fred's passions is interfaith dialogue and cooperation. For the past 23 years, he has served as president of the Michigan organization, uh, Interfaith Dialogue Association, an affiliate of the Kaufman Interfaith Institute. In this capacity, he, among other things, hosts the program Common Threads, which airs over local Michigan NPR affiliate WGVU-FM. He is also a weekly contributor to the Grand Rapids press column Ethics and Religion Talk, where he and fellow clerics answer questions on theology, morality, and personal issues. In 2012, Fred was presented with his city's Champion of Diversity Award for his work in interfaith relations. Finally, Fred sits on the National Leadership Council of the Hindu American Foundation in Washington, D.C. Fred, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, John. It's good to have you here. We've been trying uh, for several weeks, but we finally pulled it off. I'm, I'm a little nervous about today's podcast, folks, because uh, Fred, as you will be able to pick up, has a much uh, better radio voice than I do. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, he does some work in, uh, in voice uh, acting, and uh, we won't be talking about that, but uh, I'm going to be envious as, as we go through the process here. So, uh, Fred, again, welcome. You know, I like to begin these conversations by kind of grounding uh, some of these more abstract issues in people's lived experience. Um, let's begin by you sharing your story. How did you come to embrace Hinduism? Well, first, thank you very much for having me. And second, one thing we do have in common, even so, I do not like the sound of my recorded voice, <laughs> any voice, any better than anybody okay. else. Okay, all right. Um, So I was raised as a Roman Catholic. I'm an Italian-American, and they don't give you a choice if you're (laughs) Italian-American. You're pretty much, you're going to be Catholic. 
Uh, and so I, uh, uh, I was a good Catholic. I mean, I really liked religion. Uh, you can tell by my report cards. Um, uh, very young, I was, I was very thick. Um, uh, I, I was not an intelligent kid at all. I was really rather stupid, um, if I may use a technical term. Uh, but if you, if you look at my, my very average and below average grades, but you will see a B or an A uh, in religion. And so that, that always fascinated me. Um, and then, as you say, I took a world's religions class and started exploring uh, Hindu Dharma. Um, keep in mind, I, I believe you mentioned this in the bio too, that it took me a really, really long time to go from exploring at the age of 15 to actually taking initiation in my particular, uh, my particular expression of the Dharma. Uh, that wasn't until my um, uh, mid-30s, I forget exactly, but it might have been around 34, 35, something like that. So it, it, it took a long time. It was a very thoughtful process. It's interesting that you're a, a convert from another tradition. What, uh, do you have any kind of feel for Hindus in America? Is it mainly an immigrant faith? Are you starting to see more conversions from other traditions? There are two tracks. There is... Uh, what is called white Hinduism, and of course that's a misnomer because there are black and brown Hindus, but um, uh, for simplicity's sake, uh, people started uh, calling people who were not Indian, of Indian descent, white Hindus. So what, what, I will refer to them us simply as non-Indian. Um, but th th yeah, as I mentioned, there are two tracks. There is the track uh, that has been uh, cut by first-generation Indian Americans and also Indians, people of Indian descent from other countries. So, for instance, uh, there's a significant Caribbean Indian, Indian population. So they're not from India, but their forebears were from India. and But they're all on the same track. Immigrants who practice a very traditional, most likely ceremonial version of Hinduism. And then there are people such as myself who came in and again, it's a different track because we don't embrace Indian culture as significantly as the others. And most of us came in interested in things like meditation, interested in the theology of Hinduism, the philosophy of Hinduism. And it is really interesting when folks like me dialogue with the people on the other track, because so many of them, and this is certainly true in any religion, uh, Christianity included, you have a lot of people who grew up with it culturally. But if you were, if you grab, um, you know, a, 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 a typical Christian, not somebody like you, but uh, uh, somebody who has been a Christian all their lives, they may even go to church. If you ask them to explain the deep philosophical and theological points of Christianity, you might get some resistance. Right. And, 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 and uh, in, in Hinduism, 
because the culture and the religion are so intertwined, sometimes it's so difficult to separate the two. Uh, you have a lot of people who aren't, or at least originally weren't as focused on the theology and the philosophy. It was the ceremony and it was the culture. So those are the, those are the significant differences. I, I try to bridge that uh, because I'm a member of two communities uh, here in Grand Rapids. As you mentioned, I'm the Pracharic. And I'm sorry, I try to remember to have that phonetically pronounced when I give people my, my that, bio. That's what I get for not reading it through before we actually started <laughs> recording. So. And anyway, so, so most of the people in our congregation at the Hindu temple are of Indian, either they are Indian by birth and they're immigrants or they're second or third generation, uh, but they're Indian culturally, Indian American. Uh, and that's one. And then I have uh, a strong affiliation and a leadership role in what we call a Sangha. It's a meditation group and it is strongly rooted in the Hindu yoga tradition. And it, so if you go to the Hindu temple on any given uh, day, especially if there's a, a ceremony or maybe a festival, you count the non-Indian faces and you come up with very, very few, maybe 1% or less. You come to our meditation group, it's the opposite, where it's primarily people of uh, Euro-Anglo descent with a, a few Indian faces intermixed. So uh, as I say, I, I and, and if I may, I, sure. I refer to um, the, the temple-based Hinduism as Catholic Hinduism. And I refer to the more contemplative, uh, uh, my other group as Protestant Hindu, simply because there is so much emphasis on ritual in the temple. And there is almost no ceremony in the meditation group. So... Yeah, that, it's an interesting way of comparison there that might be helpful to, to listeners and viewers. My assumption in going into our conversation today is that those who are listening probably know very little other than perhaps some stereotypical things about Hinduism uh, compared to other religious traditions that tend to be more on the radar. So to mm -hmm. help with that, uh, uh, what are some of the, it might be a tall order here, but what are some of the prominent expressions of Hinduism in America and, and what's, what's its history? How did Hinduism arrive on American shores? One of the most popular expressions in Hinduism is, thank you, come again. I'm sorry, John, I'm sorry. That's all right, you had to go to the Simpsons, didn't you? I did, I did. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so when we say expressions of Hinduism, we're, uh, first of all, let's talk about uh, uh, the temples. So uh, keep in mind, this is, this is important. The migration pattern is, uh, is um, so important to this story. We had, as you might know, very racist immigration laws. Um, uh, we had uh, quotas for people from Asia and people from Europe were let in at a much greater uh, uh, number up until 1965, when there was a reformed immigration act, that's when the floodgates opened and people from Asia and India in particular started coming into the United States. There were practically no temples in the United States, only in a handful of 
uh, very large uh, um, cities, and they were they were very small temples. Uh, once uh, they started coming in, they started building temples, and uh, uh, late '60s, early '70s really started to flourish. So Hinduism is a newcomer for the most part to the American scene, even though uh, we did have Hindus in this uh, in this country in the 19th century and probably the 18th century. We certainly had Hindu thought through the transcendentalists. Because as you might know, people like Thoreau and Emerson, Emerson were yeah. really enamored with uh, our scriptures. Um, and then you had this, uh, this influx in the late 60s of Hindu teachers. And the Hindu teachers were the ones that often attracted uh, non-Indians because they were more focused in the philosophy. They were more focused in uh, meditation in in hatha yoga and that's something that uh might be interesting to uh some of the folks here uh yoga uh first of all yoga is much much bigger than what most people think of when if i say john after this podcast i'm going to go do yoga um you probably would think that i'm going to throw out a mat on the floor and i'm going to get into some interesting postures which I might do, that, that is an expression of yoga, but I just might go to the food bank and help uh, uh, distribute goods to uh, people affected by the pandemic. And that's yoga too. Yoga means union. And Hatha yoga is the yoga of, of health uh, and of, uh, of contemplative movement, uh, basically uh, prayer in motion. And karma yoga is selfless service. And jnana yoga is uh, uh, studying the scriptures or listening to a teacher. Uh, and bhakti yoga is the uh, uh, yoga of devotion, trying to establish a personal relationship with the divine. So uh, most people, when they think of yoga, only think of hatha yoga because that's the big Western expression. Uh, and, and there is, it's interesting, there is a controversy. I'm sure you've heard of it. Can evangelical Christians or Christians of other stripes practice Hatha yoga with a clear conscience? Right. Are, they, are they taking a walk on the wild side by doing that theologically? And you have, you have uh, thought leaders, ministers, uh, 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 clerics, etc., who are saying, you have to understand that, uh, that yoga comes out of Hinduism and that by practicing yoga, you are dipping your toe into the Hindu world. And you have a lot of people saying, no, 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 it's just exercise. Then you have Hindus agreeing right. with the ministers saying, well, yeah, you're right. Um, but the way we look at it is you don't have to be Hindu to practice yoga. You don't have to change your belief system at all. If all you, you want to do is tighten up the shoulders or uh, become more flexible, that's fine. But we, we do appreciate people knowing that it is an expression of, of Hinduism. But you can, you can take all of the Hinduism out of yoga in the same way 
that you can take all of the Christianity out of Christmas. Think about that. It's, 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 it's almost the same uh, argument, if you will. How many people celebrate Christmas sec- in a secular manner? Tons of people. And you have the Christian community saying, wait a minute, there, there is, don't forget the Christian underpinnings. It's not even just underpinnings. It's a significant integral part of what it is to be Christian. But other people will just go, yeah, but I know, but I just like to have a tree and presents. So that's, I, I often compare yoga slash Hinduism with Christmas Christianity. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the controversy and that there's agreement and disagreement. Uh, we'll, we'll let folks weigh that controversy out. And if they want to get in touch, we can pass along some resources, but we're not here to settle that controversy today. Um, can you discuss some of the, the, the main elements of Hinduism? If, if you wanted a Christian to have just a, a basic understanding of what Hinduism is about, what are some of the practices and, and beliefs that underlie that? Sure, sure. Be ha- happy to... Uh oblige and I'll, I'll do it as quickly as I can. I mean, there is a lot to unpack there as you know. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so, and, and I'll do as much contrasting and comparing as I can through a Christian lens. And, and that is one of the benefits of 16 years of, of Catholic education is I, I feel I'm kind of bilingual. Right. Right. But at the same time, let me also say, don't feel a burden to have to do that. One of the concerns I have about Christian approaches, particularly evangelicals, to other religions is we get, we're stuck in this doctrinal comparative template. They believe this, we believe this, and therefore they're wrong. So oh. it's helpful, but, but feel free to, to describe what your faith tradition is in its own right. And, and we'll do, we'll, we'll do the absolutely. Whole yeah, absolutely. Um, but so for instance, you know, when someone asks about a religion, I mean, if, if, if a Martian came down and, and said, uh, John, what's all this Christianity about? Where do you go first? I think that uh, until you establish two things, it's, it's hard to go anywhere else. And that is, what is your concept of divinity? And what is our relationship to that divinity if there is a relationship to be had, if there's a divinity that exists? So I'll, I'll start from there. Um, for the most part, the, the understanding of divinity, of God with a capital G, is that uh, uh, God, and uh, God has many different names, but when we're talking about God in, in its most supreme essence, we use the term Brahman. And uh, Brahman normally is, when we talk about Brahman, we don't even assign any sort of gender to it. Uh, you, you really shouldn't, some people do, but you shouldn't say he or she. It, 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 Brahman is it. Brahman is pure absolute consciousness. Brahman is impersonal and yet has a personal aspect. And the, the, the biggest difference between all the Abrahamic religions and the Dharmic religions, including Hinduism, is that the, the Abrahamic religions believe that God created the universe as an other thing. There's God, and then there's everything that he created. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hindus would say that God didn't create the universe as much as God became the universe. The universe is an expression of divinity. It is not the totality of divinity. So if the entire universe 
or the multiverses all imploded into nothingness, there would still be Brahman. There would still be God. Okay. So another thing to compare would, would be to say uh, a, a, a Christian would say, God is in this room. A Hindu would say, God is this room. The, it, God permeates the atoms, the protons and the electrons. It's, it's, it's all God stuff. So what that means is that we are a part of divinity. We have always been a part of divinity. And there will never be any separation of divinity uh, from divinity. So whatever it is that, that we do, whatever, uh, whatever uh, route our lives take, and in the afterlife state as well, we are always a part of the divine. Uh, so, so what that means then is th there is no... Let me, let, me, let me turn that into a positive. The end result of every soul that has ever been expressed out of God, the end result is always to return to that divine source. That doesn't go just for Hindus. Every, if, if you are an embodied being, that is your destiny. So it's kind of it's kind of a, a Hindu predestination, mm -hmm. okay. if you will. That, that that now in our individual lives, because I know uh, Christians love talking about free will. So the question comes up: Do do Hindus believe in free will? Microcosmically, yes. Macrocosmically, no. So in our individual lives, we have choice, and we can move towards God we can move in a completely other different direction. I, I, I could drop everything now and, and just dive into a, a life of pure hedonism and uh, nastiness, if, if, if that's where I felt uh, I would find the most happiness. Um, and life after lifetime, because we do talk about rebirth, and we might get into that a little bit later, but um, uh, life after life, I will be given every opportunity to come back to that divine source. And at some point, again, the, the predestined part of this is that I'll get a, just a big clunk on the head and I will realize at some point, you know, all this uh, isn't really making me happy. Uh, the money isn't making me happy. The, 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 the pleasures aren't making me happy. And I will discover the, the joy of leading a God-centered life. And again, that God-centered life doesn't have to be a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Christian. It, it, uh, uh, Hinduism uh, does not confer upon its members any special election. God doesn't like us any better. And anyone of any religion or no religion can acquire that state of self-realization, awakenness, et cetera, et cetera. And at that point, uh, we, we no longer need to reincarnate. We merge into the bosom of the divine. So I'll stop there for now, because I think that is the most important element of Hinduism is, you know, what is the divine and our relationship to it? Yeah, I, I just hopefully listeners will understand that uh, 
uh, an hour podcast is not enough to adequately unpack any religious tradition, including Hinduism. And so all we're able to do is kind of hit some highlights and hopefully that will generate some understanding and folks can seek out appropriate resources to, uh, including conversations with other, other Hindus in their neighborhoods. Yes. Uh, to try and and I, I can, I can share, I'll, I'll tell you too, if, uh, if people go to HinduAmerican.org, which is my organization in Washington, D.C., uh, uh, if they uh, poke around a little bit, they will see uh, Hindu, Hinduism 101. Click on that link and uh, it's, it's, you'll, you'll, you'll walk away very informed. Awesome. I will include uh, that link to that organization and that uh, document uh, in the program notes uh, as well. So oh, great. So folks can find that. So. Um, when we, as Christians, particularly evangelicals and Protestants, think about uh, religion, we tend to think of text-based religions. Um, but not every religion is text-based, even though they may have a text. Um, Hinduism has sacred texts. What is the relationship between Hinduism and their sacred texts and, and the Vedas? How does that come together? I have a feeling I'm not going to answer that question uh, uh, to your satisfaction or mine. <laughs> okay. But I will give it a stab. So you are correct. We do have texts, plural. And here's, here's the best thing that I can, I can do. And, and again, I'm going to compare. I want you to imagine a world where nobody ever got the bright idea to take those 66 books that make up your Bible and scrunch them together into one volume. So you just have all these different scripts out there. You you know, uh, you know, Job, Genesis, Mark, Luke, and and certain people. Imagine certain people gravitating towards some books as opposed to others. So you might have your John Christians and your Mark Christians and your Matthew Christians. Okay, not that they're locking horns all the time. It's just, okay, you come from the tradition of Mark, you come from the tradition of John. That, that is, that's, that's just fine. You might emphasize certain things in your life more than somebody else. That is a very simplistic understanding of what Hinduism is. We have tons and tons of text. I'm constantly coming up. I'm doing some reading, and all of a sudden, I'll read that this comes from the such and such book, and thousands of years old. I'd never heard of it, uh, and and that's okay. Now we do have four foundational books. They're called the Vedas, and I would say the Vedas would be kind of like our Torah in that everything proceeds from them. They are foundational. But these other books uh, are, are, can be more important to, you know, to me. For instance, the Bhagavad Gita, which I know you've heard of, mm -hmm. and, and uh, I'm sure uh, many others have. The Bhagavad Gita, uh, to me, is more important than the Vedas. It just, it just is. Uh, and what I need to know is in, is in the Bhagavad Gita. I do study the Vedas to some degree, but not anywhere near the extent that I, I focus on the Bhagavad Gita. Other people, uh, they focus on the Srimad Bhagavatam and, uh, I could, the Shiva Puranas, I, there's just 
There's just a lot. Um, and so perhaps that is why we are not considered a religion of the book. And also our teaching tradition allows us, I believe, a bit more latitude. So for instance, uh, imagine the, the Christians today who are very concerned about, say, the role of women in the church. What can women do? Are they able to be ministers, etc.? Or the uh, LGBT issues. You go back to the texts and how you interpret them means uh, this, this is what I have to abide by. And sometimes people uh, are, are, are frustrated in that. Uh, Hindus, I think, are a lot more comfortable with, oh, that's then, this is now. Okay. Uh, I, I read something in the Vedas, uh, I think it was just yesterday, and it, uh, it was a verse that said something like, you sh the two of you shall come together, meaning a husband and wife, yada, 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 and uh, pray for a, a, a male child. Well, you know, five, 6,000 years ago, Maybe having male children was a little bit more valuable, but uh, I, I would say that the vast majority of my Hindu co-religionists would say, "No, we don't. We don't do that." <laughs> you know, maybe right. maybe after maybe after four daughters, you know, they might <laughs> say that prayer if if they really really want uh, uh, some diversity in their home. But th that stuff just isn't important. So I, I think we have some permission to just say, well, that, that just doesn't speak to the way society is these days, so I'm going to ignore that. You, of course, you have to be very judicious about that. You can't go around uh, uh, robbing banks because you've just decided that the prohibitions against stealing don't mean anything to you anymore. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I always try and send the questions ahead of time to my conversation partners just so they can kind of know the line of questioning and prepare answers. But one has come to mind, and that is uh, how have uh, prominent uh, uh, spokespersons or personalities within American pop culture been helpful or perhaps a hindrance to Hinduism? I'm thinking here of like Yogananda, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi of Transcendental Meditation, Deepak mm -hmm. Chopra. How, how has that helped uh, Hinduism in American culture and, and maybe maybe not? That's a good question. I'm, I'm happy to address it. For the most part, uh, it, it has been helpful. However, one of the challenges that I see, it, it frustrates me a great deal, when these movements attract uh, uh, celebrities and the teacher becomes a celebrity, uh, and then it's all about the celebrity, right? Uh, it's star power. Mm. Uh, to me, that uh, is never a good sign. And I, I, I certainly, if, if we were to talk about people in, uh, in the Christian world who become rock stars, you know that that can be very dangerous oh, yeah. on, on a number of levels. So I, I feel the same way. Now, interestingly, I didn't mention this in the beginning, but it was one of the things that led me to where I am today was when the Beatles went to India to study with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Um, I wasn't personally attracted to him, but 
something clicked. And when they did that, I was 12, I think 11, 12, when they went to India. Uh, and so I was still Catholic, but it's something about the, the, the process of meditation really, really appealed to me back then. And I just kind of put it in the back of my mind. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And it wasn't like, oh, the Beatles are doing it, so it has to be good. Because a year before, uh, the controversy was the Beatles were admitting publicly that they were taking LSD. Mm. And I, my 11-year-old self, didn't go, oh, well, I got to go take LSD if the Beatles are doing it. No, not at all. I was actually uh, uh, very disappointed in that, that they were, they were involved in drugs. But when they got into meditation... Interestingly enough, through a Hindu expression, I was, uh, it fascinated me. That said, again, the Maharishi started collecting celebrities and that bothered me. And it, it continues whenever I see some sort of movement, whether it's Hindu or something else, and they focus on the, uh, the, the, some celebrity. I'll, I'll tell you what, too. Um, there was a World Hindu Congress outside of, of um, Chicago going on three years ago now. And the leadership asked me if I could get Julia Roberts to give a speech because uh, my wife and I are connected somewhat. N we're, we're nowhere near the level of, of Julia Roberts. Okay, we don't, we don't hang together. But they had this unrealistic expectation that I could just call Hollywood. Hey, Julia, <laughs> hey, how you doing? <laughs> and, and, you know, just the thought, like, of all of the wonderful people that could give talks, why, why an actress? Why somebody from Hollywood? It didn't happen, by the way. Julia wasn't taking my calls. <laughs> well, I'm disappointed, but maybe in the future. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the stereotypes that you run into that Christians have about Hindus and Hinduism? Well, you know, that's interesting because the latest polls uh, say that most Christians have no idea hmm. of, of Hinduism. It's a very neutral when you, when you uh, see uh, what Christians, what religions Christians are aware of and how they feel about them. Mm -hmm. uh, we're like the 50% mark. Like we don't know too much about it. The, the people who do uh, uh, know about us, uh, first of all, you have to be Indian to be Hindu. That's, that's something that a lot of people are, are they, they look, look askew, uh, like, really? Right? But, but yeah, there, there is, there's no prohibition in the scriptures or any tradition that, that you have to be a, a certain ethnicity. And I've been multiple places in India at ashrams and temples. I did a lot of public speaking. Nobody's ever come up to me and said, who do you think you are? You know, mm -hmm. what are you non-Hindu you? No, that's not true. Um, um, and another thing is the idea of polytheism. The, the problem with Hinduism from a Western standpoint is we don't neatly fit into one of those isms when it comes to the understanding of divinity. So here's, here's how I would explain that. 
So we have God with a capital G, and we do have entities that we refer to as gods and goddesses with a lowercase g. Different Hindus have different understandings of exactly what that means. To some people, the gods and goddesses are real supernatural entities that exist in a spiritual realm and can have an influence on how we live our lives. Other Hindus don't believe that they necessarily have an objective existence, but are more like archetypes. Um, they are expressions of the various aspects of divinity, but they've been personified to, to teach us lessons on morality, ethics, and theology. So you can have two people at a Hindu temple, both of them sitting in front of a statue of Ganesh or Shiva or whatever deity, one understanding that this entity actually exists in the great beyond, and another one having that understanding. Shiva is just a, a personification of the power of God in for regeneration. And both of them exist very well together. Um, so to call it polytheism, just to, just to say Hinduism is pure polyth polytheism, is wrong. But I can't say that there isn't a polytheistic element in Hinduism because we do have these entities, real or imagined. And you know, you walk into a Hindu temple and you see all of these statues, and you know, you see people bowing to them or sitting in front of them, meditating and praying. You know, at first glance, you're just going to think, well, it's a polytheistic religion, but it's it's much greater than that. Ultimately, everything rests in Brahman, in the same way that I rest in Brahman, and I believe you rest in Brahman. If there is a Shiva or a Vishnu, etc., they would rest in Brahman too. So ultimately, there still is that that one one source. So that's uh, uh, significant. Um, and the other thing is too, and, and this is a really tough issue. We'd have to do a whole show on this. And, I, and, and if we did, I'd, I'd even get um, somebody even better equipped to have this discussion. But the whole idea of the caste system hmm. uh, is uh, really a challenge. So here's, here's the best I can do on caste if I have just a couple of minutes to say this. There is no question that the Hindu scriptures, the Vedas, talk about society and the division of labor. And it is divided in four ways. The intellectuals, uh, um, physicians, and uh, religious people at the top, the, the um, government, whether it's a monarch or a soldier in second, third, the uh, mer mercantile community, business, and fourth, labor. Now, uh, in the scriptures, I can show you several examples where it states that this is not birth-based, that you can't call yourself a Brahmin just because your daddy was a Brahmin. However, that, uh, that system did get uh, um, corrupted. I know, corruption in religion. John, have you ever heard of that? 
What a surprise. It's, it's, I know. In a sense, it's nice to hear that it's not just a Christian problem. <laughs> so um, I never heard about that. You'll have to tell me about it sometime. <laughs> um, so, so anyway, uh, there, there was, you could be born into a family of sudras, which are the laborers, and you could end up a Brahmin. What people fail to realize is some of the greatest religious figures in Hinduism, in Hinduism do not, are not from the Brahmin class. They're from lower classes, including the Sudra class. And this whole idea of untouchable, which is, which is a, a great stain on, on uh, Indian society, um, there is no basis for that whatsoever. There is no scriptural basis or teaching basis. And uh, what I say about, about it is, about caste in general, is that um, like with slavery, where the vast majority of slave owners in the United States were Christian, the vast majority of abolitionists were Christian. And so there is a significant tension. There's a significant um, um, work going on in Indian societies between the people who still hold on to the past and people who uh, realize that th this is this is wrong. Cast there's nothing there's nothing in the scriptures. Actually, the opposite is in the scriptures. Uh, any sort of bigotry to look down upon someone. Now. What caste does do, it acknowledges that there is a natural hierarchy. And in every society, there is no pure egalitarian society because I don't believe that's how we're, how we're built. And so I often pose this example. If I, was, if I was to tell you, John, I know the son of a plumber who grew up to be bank president you might say, well, that's very nice, but this is uh, America, and that happens. If I was to tell you that the son of a plumber goes into his father's business and maintains his plumbing identity, and he marries the daughter of a bank president, that doesn't happen very often. And so sociologists acknowledge that if you share the same socioeconomic status, the same more or less education status, religion, things like that, you're, you're going to have a more successful marriage. A lot of caste uh, issues delve or, or revolve around that familiarity with social connections. Uh, and one other thing too, one of the things that really made caste um, uh, the problem it is, it has been, uh, is uh, a British colonialism because they... Uh, they encouraged caste division, and they were very hard and fast on scheduling who's in this caste and who's in this other caste. I don't want to blame everything on colonialism because that's a kind of an easy thing to do, but it didn't help matters. Sure. So there you go. Right. Well, well, some of, I appreciate that. It, I would encourage Christian viewers and listeners to try and be more aware of the, the stereotypes that we have and uh, to check those by, by again, going deeper and uh, having those important conversations and looking uh, not primarily at Christian books necessarily about Hinduism, but look at what Hindus are writing and, and trying to unpack all that. Some of what you just said uh, folds over nicely into my next question. Um, I try to be 
uh, self-critical about my own Christian tradition. I think it's important, particularly in light of what's going on in, in the American context. Um, and I, I think you are, are similarly wired uh, from some of what I just heard about wanting to you know, be uh, critical about your own tradition. Um, we've seen a, a revival of various forms of nationalism in America and other places, including India. What, what are your thoughts as an American Hindu about some of what has gone on in India with nationalism? First of all, since, since I am, as you rightly described me, an American, my understanding of Indian politics may, they are better, my understandings are better than those of the average bear. But, <laughs> but I still am an American who is focusing mainly on what we have here. What I can say is this, it's all very complicated. Uh, and each issue, I, I take each issue individually and I look at it and I make my own decisions. And sometimes I agree with the premise, but not necessarily the method. And I'll give you an example. Uh, for instance, you know about the abrogation, what is called the abrogation of Article 370, where Pakistan, uh, not Pakistan, uh, uh, Kashmir changed its status. Right. So, so for everyone who doesn't know about that, uh, Kashmir had a special status that was given temporarily in, in the constitution. It says this is temporary and can be revoked at any time. It allowed them more autonomy than other Indian states. So it's kind of like how we treat Texas. You know? <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, imagine Texas on steroids where, where they really, uh, they really could do things. Imagine a state that we still allowed slavery in something like that. So, uh, 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 Kashmir had its own government. Uh, it was still a part of India, but at the same time, as I say, separate. And the Indian governments finally decided, you know what? We want Kashmir to abide by Indian law, which meant that, for instance, because Kashmir is uh, uh, primarily Muslim, and uh, there you could legally divorce your wife by what is called triple talaq, by simply saying, I divorce you three times. Um, and uh, they also wanted to offer the same protections to the LGBT community, which they did not have there. And they just wanted to be part of the family. Now, the, the methods uh, that they used were somewhat dr draconian because they were afraid of terrorist attacks. So they came down heavy and it wouldn't surprise me at all. It doesn't surprise me at all that uh, there are cha charges of human rights abuses. I condemn human rights abuses. Absolutely. I condemn violence towards people. At the same time, throughout all of this conversation that, that I've uh, read and heard in Western media, very few people, very few people uh, remember that in 1990, Hindus were driven out of the Kashmir Valley, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of them in a cultural genocide by Pakistan-backed terrorists, where these Islamists uh, uh, rode through towns and they, the, the phrase was, flee, convert, or die. People forget about that. And they're trying to resettle these people who lost their land. So once again, 
I support uh, uh, Kashmir uh, with, I support the new status of them being a full-fledged union territory uh, under the Indian government uh, as, as was hoped for way back when. I strongly condemn any human rights abuses and any violence, period. Um, and here's one of the issues in, 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 in India that a lot of people aren't aware of. So India is a secular state. They, they don't have a, a state religion, as does Pakistan. The problem is they express their secularity in a different way than we do. They take, they take religion much more seriously than, than we do. And when India got their independence, they gave special rights to minority religions. So for instance, Islam being a, a, a minority religion, they subsidized Muslims' pilgrimages, their hajj, to Saudi Arabia. Uh, another thing was that Christians, Jews, Muslims, etc., etc., all have control of their houses of worship. Doesn't that make sense to you? That if you walk into a mosque in, in your town, wouldn't you guess that it's run by some sort of board and they're all Muslim and they all they're all stakeholders? Guess right. who runs? Yeah, guess who runs the temples in India? The government. Hmm. So again, this is a wacky form of secularity. Um, and uh, so because of that that caused a tremendous amount of tensions. People, you, Here's something, John. You had Hindu organizations, Hindu temples and organizations trying to convince the government that they weren't really Hindu so they would get the perks that minority religions were getting. Mm. Seriously. Yeah, yeah, they would go and say, oh, no, 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 we're, we're, we're not Hindu. We, they, they, they try to uh, uh, cite one particular verse and they go, well, see, we don't do that, so we're not Hindu. And the government basically, basically said, get out of here. <laughs> you guys are Hindu. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, to, to wrap things up, again, one more time, because it is so very important. A lot of these issues are very complicated. Uh, the, the farmer issue, uh, you know that there's a big farmer protest. Mm -hmm. What people don't know is that, uh, number one, there are 26 Indian states, 23 states, the farmers of 23 states support what the government is going to do. This, this whole protest is from farmers in three states. And, and this is not a religious issue, but people are trying to religionize it. So, so believe me, this is an economics issue. And economics to me is like religion, meaning, meaning that you have faith in something, but you, you can't guarantee the outcome of that faith. And so um, if, if the government does A, B, C, and D uh, uh, financially, is it going to be good for the country? Is it going to be bad for the country? We all have our positions. And then we find out later Oh, did it cause inflation? Oh, did it cause a recession? Oh, did it cause a depression? Oh, did it cause prosperity? You, you don't know until it's happening. So uh, in terms of what the government is, is uh, uh, promoting in, in their farming legislation, uh, 
I'm not the guy to ask. <laughs> only, only that I support peaceful protest and I support um, a government allowing protest without uh, causing any fear of loss of uh, life or rights. I appreciate your willingness to, to weigh in on that. I know that you don't speak for all Hindus in America or a little. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, 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 no. I do. They gave me permission. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, I, I'm going to go on record and say I don't speak for all Christians, but I do try and represent the event. <laughs> no, I don't speak for all. I know. I know. Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> uh, but I do appreciate them. I mean, these are these are difficult times that we live in, and uh, I just think that people in, in various religious traditions need to be uh, informed about what's going on, draw upon a wide variety of sources, and recognize that there are, are a, a wide variety of forces that are are playing into how we interact with each other. And we, we need to be on guard against, like you say, violence and human rights uh, violations and those kinds of things. So yes. I appreciate your willingness to weigh in on that. Let, let's conclude our time together with talking a little bit about uh, dialogue. Um, how have uh, Hindus been involved in uh, interreligious dialogue? That is a good question. And I'll tell you this, first of all, remember I talked about, you know, pulling pulling your average Christian off the street and saying, hey, uh, we need you to present to a, a group tonight on Christianity. How many people would be going, be going like, how many, how many, how many? Right, right, right. No way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. So many Hindus that I have come across are so reluctant to be involved in dialogue mm-hmm. because it means they have to speak intelligently mm. about their tradition, especially when they're in the same room. I know that dialogue, sometimes it takes place uh, with a group of clerics, and sometimes it takes place with a group of lay people. And sometimes it's a mix of the two. So when you get uh, a garden variety Hindu dialoguing with a John Moorhead, uh, 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 then they are, they are overwhelmed at your knowledge of your religion and they feel like pipsqueaks because they don't have the training. So there, th- there's that. So uh, I have been actively seeking more Hindus here in West Michigan to become involved in dialogue. And sometimes it's been a challenge. I'll, I'll, I'll be quite honest with you. The, the, two, the two most active Hindus in dialogue outside of myself are two brothers uh, one's in seventh grade and the other one is a sophomore in high school. And these kids are superstars. They know their religion better than so many adults. They've been trained very, very well. So when, when I can't do something, I try to get them to do it. Um, and the other thing is, we, I, I will admit that we've kind of had to come to the interfaith, multi-faith table and kind of scrunch ourselves in between because so much of dialogue, the, the history of dialogue in the United States, it first started out, of course, interdenominationally, then it was Christian Jewish and then Christian Jewish Muslim. So you had mm-hmm. all the Abrahamics together. And then all of a sudden you got these people going, hey, we, we want in too. And right. we come in, we come in with, with this totally different tradition because we don't descend from Abraham. We don't have similar scriptures, right? Uh, uh, you know, what you share, the Judeo-Christian tradition with the Bible and the Quran basically, you know, coming out of the Bible, the same, so many of the same uh, figures, uh, it's, it's, 
it was diff difficult in the beginning, more and more you will you are going to find acceptance that people have opened up their uh, their circle and allowed us in, and and that has been a blessing. Here in Grand Rapids, you know, since I've been working at Interfaith for uh, over twenty years, um, it's it's very natural for the most part. If if somebody is doing something interfaith and they're going, well, hey, we need a we need this, we need that. Oh yeah, we need a Hindu. So I, I get, you know, there, there's not too many, there's not too many uh, forums or events where I'm I'm left out. Okay, or the, or I should say that the the tradition is left out. I will tell you one one story. One time, this uh, this uh, high school called me up, local, and they said we're having diversity day. And of course, one way of expressing diversity is through religion, and we're putting together a panel now. Aside from me speaking, my role as president of Interfaith Dialogue Association, I run the Speakers Bureau. So people will call me for speakers instead of like, if you want a Muslim speaker, instead of calling the mosque, they'll call me and I'll get in touch with the right people at the mosque and or mosques, plural, we have several here. And so that's what we do. So like we're, we, we're your one-stop shop for all your spirituality needs. You don't have to call all these different places, leave it to us. So uh, I said, well, I'm more than happy to be on the panel to represent Hinduism. And I'm also happy to help fill out the panel with other people through my network. And she's, uh, so I said, what do you have already? She goes, oh, we have a very diverse panel. We've got a Baptist, a Methodist, an Episcopalian, and a non-denominational Christian. They're, they're, they're all there. So what else do we need? <laughs> there you go. There's diversity and there's diversity. Yeah. And, and so I ended up calling a friend of mine who was a Jew, and, and uh, I went there. And so we had a little bit more diversity than four different expressions of Christianity. <laughs> So anyway, long story short, uh, uh, I, oh, oh, I'll, I'll say one other thing. There are, I've spoken to some Hindus uh, who were impatient. They didn't feel that they had a role, a, a room at the table, and they just stopped. And I, I, whenever I have a conversation with anybody like that, I go, don't, don't. You just keep on knocking. Someday the door will open. And, and that is proved to be, to be true. Uh, yeah. And, and the interfaith crowd, people who, people who uh, uh, are naturally drawn to anything interfaith, multi-faith, uh, I think they appreciate having a completely different uh, 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 tradition outside of the Abrahamic tradition just share. And I will say this too. So I've, I've spoken to a lot of churches, uh, um, usually, um, you know, the adult Sunday school that some of them have in between services. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I have organized a number of uh, uh, series where, let's say over six weeks, one week you get a Jew, the next week you get a Buddhist on down the line. And when it's Hindu, normally I'm the person who, uh, who uh, says that, who, who does that. And more than once after class, somebody will come up to me and go, oh, don't tell the pastor, but I think I believe in reincarnation. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I say nothing. My goal is not, as you know, Hinduism is not evangelical. I, I do nothing to uh, sway them one way or the other. Like, if you do, well, that's that's fine. No problem. <laughs> but none of none of those none of those incidences has happened at a evangelical church. I will admit, I've spoken rarely at a church that would label itself evangelical. Usually, it's mainstream Christianity, like Methodists, Presbyterian, right, yeah. And yeah. Episcopalian. So, but the, the people treat me very, very well, very well. Good. I appreciate uh, your your honesty about and sharing that uh, many Hindus don't feel your average Hindu. I don't think your average Christian really feels uh, prepared to do that. But you and I and our friend and colleague Darren Dirksen have had, uh, we were having an ongoing series of private conversations with our interest in seeing more grassroots conversations take place. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, you reached out to me uh a few years ago, I was at a, a, a conference of evangelicals on Islamophobia, and we were talking one of the ways we combat that is to have more more dialogues on a grassroots level. And I, you reached out to me at that time, and we've been having conversations. So if anyone is listening to this uh, who is a pastor or connected to a church and uh, you're interested in seeing some kind of dialogue take place, please reach out to me and uh, to Fred, and and we'll see if we can make this kind of thing happen. Because uh, love, it, yes, it needs love, to be more than just a the talking heads and the so-called professionals uh, that do it. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, can I say one other thing? Sure, of course. Okay. Um, I do the temple tours, so I get calls from churches, and again, usually mainline Protestant churches, occasionally a Catholic church. I don't get a lot of calls from evangelical churches, but there is one church that calls me every year. Uh, and it is a non-denominational Bible church, and they want a tour. It's usually a group of about uh, 12 people at the most, always the same pastor who leads them. And the reason that they come in, the reason that they tour the temple, is that shortly after the temple tour, within a month or two, they're on their way to India, and they're on their way to India to do mission work. So the purpose of them being in our temple is to learn more about Hinduism so they can convert Hindus to Christianity. I want you to know that I welcome them with as much love and understanding as anybody else that that goes through the temple. Uh, uh, My goal is to share knowledge. What you do with that knowledge is completely up to you. Uh, sadly, we weren't able to do it uh, uh, this year because of COVID. But uh, uh, normally, actually, it is. It's, it's usually around the winter time. Yeah, because if you're going to go to India, you want to go in the winter most yeah. of the time, unless you're scaling the Himalayas. <laughs> so I just I, I wanted to share that. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting. I would imagine that there are pl- I could find plenty of co-religionists of mine that would go, "Why would you do that?" But okay, do I want them to learn about Hinduism from a trusted source or do I want them to learn from, uh, you know, some, some book written by a non-Hindu who uh, refers to us as demon worshipers? Right, right. Yeah, good point. Well, Fred, uh, we are at the uh, conclusion of your time. I appreciate uh, 
you carving out some time and it's taken us a while to do it, but uh, I've, I've been privileged to be a guest on your radio show a couple of times. So I'm pleased to repay the favor here. Thanks for coming by. I appreciate it. You're more than welcome. Namaste. This is uh, the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. Uh, again, uh, please check out our website at multifaithmatters.org for additional resources. And please keep in mind, we are a nonprofit organization. We're only able to do this podcast and create additional resources due to the financial support of people who believe this is an important thing that needs to be done. We have a patrons page connected to the podcast. You can click up above on the website 